Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen DiTrolio Coakley, and today we bring to you a conversation between Lauren Guerra and I about brujería and the spiritual landscape of young people. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. Hello, this is Stephen DiTrolio Coakley for Open Plaza Podcast. We are here live from Santiago de Tepetlapa, and I have the pleasure of interviewing this afternoon Dr. Lauren Guerra, who is a professor at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here. We're so happy that you could join us. And you had mentioned in the before kind of our conversation um, that you were you're interested in curanduria, santeria, and kind of the millennial exploration uh, of this ancestral knowledge. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about that. Yes, definitely. So my background is in systematic theology, but one of the things that I've always found really interesting about Latinos and about Latin America is how complex religious faith expression truly is. So in Latin America, we have Latinos who are Christian of different denominations. We have Judaism. We have Latinos who practice Islam. And then we have this really interesting uh, variety of spiritual practices, which includes santeria, curanderismo, brujeria. And so there really is not just one way to practice faith, you know, in the Latino community. And that's one of the things that I think that a lot of um, Latinx millennials are trying to navigate is to figure out what their spiritual belief system or spiritual practices are, especially as we see the rise of the nons, right? The rise of the disaffiliated, the spiritual, not religious. So I've noticed, particularly with my students, that many of them are gravitating towards brujería, curanderismo, and these different um, spiritual practices. Yeah. I've I've heard many times in... Argentina specifically, where I was living, people say, I'm not Catholic anymore, but I'm spiritual. Right. And they'll be interested in, like you said, now, how does that play out maybe with some of your students or how you see with like this kind of multi-faith belonging, like, well, I have a little bit of Catholic because of my background, but I don't do that anymore. How have you noticed that in your studies or your, your students? Right. So I've noticed a lot of my Latinx students, my context is California. So Mm -hmm. I've taught predominantly um, in the Bay Area and in Los Angeles. And many of my students, they'll express that they were raised Catholic, right? Many of them were raised either Catholic or Protestant, and that they have slowly sort of moved away from their different churches. And yet they have this longing to connect with their grandmothers or this Mm -hmm. ancestral past and so trying to figure that out has uh, been really interesting and part of what I tell my students is that it's okay to not know everything Mm. it's okay to have questions it's okay to explore Mm -hmm. you know and that um, and also I in the classroom, I tend to push back against this notion of purity within sure. Catholicism. Absolutely. You know, Catholicism is a very um, sort of complex religion in and of itself with different influences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so I try to 
explore that with my students as well. But yeah, I've noticed that many of my students, particularly when I was teaching for some time at UCLA and Chicano studies, and of course, like in the world of Chicano studies, there's a lot of uh, sort of... um, hesitation or suspicion when it comes to organized religion of course because of coloniality etc and so rightly so you know they're very suspicious of uh, these type of questions however when I introduced them to things like Curandismo Santeria, it was very interesting for them. They're mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, like that makes sense. You know, it makes sense that my family would go to church on Sunday, but then we'd go see the curandera later in the week. Or mm-hmm. oh, it makes sense. Like you know, why my family you know would practice Santeria mm-hmm. and remain Catholic. Right, sure. being able to navigate these different worlds it was really fascinating, and so. Yeah, many of my students ha- also, they, I've noticed they have a fascination with um, astrology. Mm. So a figure like Walter Mercado is mm. very, very important yeah. in Latinx culture in general. And I remember, you know, growing up that both of my grandmothers, both of my father's side and my mother's side, were very, very into Walter Mercado. And even my mom, you know, we still listen to Walter Mercado. And she actually, it was funny, a couple of months ago, she like took a screenshot of the television <laughs> and recorded, That's you know, so my sign, my yeah. Aries horoscope for the week and it was hilarious but um yeah you know things like that like uh this interest in astrology uh interest in curanderismo like so for example a book like bless me ultima um rudolfo anaya's 1972 book has become a classic especially you know in chicano studies precisely for that because it highlights the presence of the bruja figure curanderismo as part of the culture Mm -hmm. and is an important part of healing as we think of decolonizing, I think that's a big reason why many young people are gravitating towards, you know, this return to ancestral knowledge, mm-hmm. to different forms of healing and ancestral worship that are not necessarily um, part of organized religion or Absolutely. Christianity. How are they coming across this? I know you mentioned it in your class, but even in maybe some conversations that you've had, how are they Are they discovering it through, like, I know you mentioned some of their abuelitas, but I was curious because at least in where, where I live, there's, there's really not an exposure, even for a lot of Latino communities, um, of, you know, Santeria churches on the East Coast. Right. I'm, I'm, obviously, there probably are, but in our little niche in New Jersey. How, how are they coming across this? How are they getting interested um, where, where are they going for these, uh, search for, for knowledge and identity? Right, right. So there is a group that I know of, um, like for example, in Los Angeles called Mujeres de Maiz, and they actually gather, um, for full moon ceremonies in honor, in honor of Coyoshalki. So they, it's a group, um, predominantly a group of women they gather and they participate in the ceremony. And so I think it's one of those things, like once you can get connected with one group, it opens up the doors to other groups, right? It's like once you're kind of like your foot is in the door, then you learn about all these other opportunities and groups and gatherings. Uh, you know, social media has played a huge impact in terms of getting the word out there and spreading the word um, so, I mean, even in popular culture, you have someone like the rapper um, Princess Nokia. She is Afro-Latina from New York. And one of her most popular songs, which is from 2016, is called Brujas. And she talks about, you know, the Orishas and casting spells with her cousins and, you know, um, wearing 
all white, which is a nod to the initiation process for Santeria of wearing all white for the first year. And uh, even in the video, she starts with a song to Yemaya and she's standing in the waters. So, you know, things like that. I mean, it is present in popular culture. And another thing, too, that I think is important to note is the rise of English-speaking Latinx social media platforms. Like, for example, Better Like and Me Too have become a really great space. Um, one of the, My one critique of those two groups is that there's not a lot of talk about religion. However, in terms of talking about food, culture, music, they're really fantastic um, because there is, you know, this growing population of English-speaking Latinos. Not, and again, there's oftentimes this misconception that all Latinos speak Spanish, that all Latinos are Catholic, right? And that's not the case. There is really so much diversity. And, you know, that's another one of my major questions that I've always sort of struggled with is what makes a Latino Latino, yeah. right? Because it's not, you know, if we define it by language, it's very limiting. If we define it by religion, that's also very limiting. So it's really, we are such a, <laughs> a unique and complex community. It truly is fascinating how millennials, especially Latino millennials, are trying to reconnect with traditional wisdom uh, and what, the word you use, ancestral wisdom, um, connected to santeria, curanderia, and brujeria. But one of the things that I was curious to ask you about is one of the first times I've ever practiced Dia de los Muertos was actually in the United States because in the background that I grew up, it was, you know, that's that's not a thing that we should practice because I grew up in evangelical kind of background in South America. But I found sitting down in front of some pictures of our, in, in this case, it was a picture of my mother who's recently passed away and some friends and, and you know, sharing and talking it was a very special kind of moment for all of us to kind of talk about our our families. And so so one of the things that I wanted to ask you was how do these uh, millennials trying to reconnect with this ancestral knowledge practice this maybe in their homes or in their day-to-day -day life? Yeah, so one of the most important sort of celebrations that has really grown in popularity more recently is Dia de los Muertos. So a lot of young Latinx folks will participate in building altars, home altars. And another thing that's very, has really fascinating is that oftentimes these altars are not only just dedicated to relatives, like deceased loved ones, but they also include figures of popular culture. So for example, you'll see an altars to Selena and altars to Celia Cruz, you know, um, so that's also something quite interesting, you know, who, you know, in some ways you can think about like, are these millennial saints, right? Are these people who millennials connect to, um, you know, they, again, like folks like Selena, Celia Cruz, they have become icons. Frida is another great example. Frida Kahlo, there's altars built, you know, in her honor. And so it's not just necessarily uh, blood relatives that people honor, but it's also these cultural icons that have become larger than life. And so in addition to participating in Dia de los Muertos, I know a ton of um, young Latinos who want to reconnect with danza. So, for example, you know, people will participate in different ceremonies in preparation for Dia de los Muertos, will participate in sweat lodges and things of that sort in order to reconnect to the land and have a stronger sense of ancestral wisdom. Um, you know, carrying sage has become very popular, carrying crystals, you know, 
know, um, those type of things have increased in popularity recently. One of the things that, and I would love for your perspective on this, it's almost these practices, especially with the building an altar to Celia Cruz or Frida Kahlo, it's almost like legitimizing these people through their own uh, cultural practices of saying, you know, this is who we find that is important. And these are the people that we want to lift up in our community. Right, right. So someone like uh, Selena is an excellent example. You know, she is revered. And this is, you know, more than 20 years after her death. Like, the, you know, the poor woman passed away so long ago. And yet, it's as if it happened yesterday, right? She's so present in popular memory. And so, you know, she is a, a singer, of course, but also for her beauty. So, you know, um, one of our colleagues, Naomi Deanda, mentioned how the Mac Selena um, lipstick you know, it's sold out in 10, not even 12, 13 minutes. And so, you know, you see people lifting up figures like Selena for their, because they do represent this U.S. Latinx identity that people really resonate with. Absolutely. Now, where do you see this going forward? I know it's it's hard to ask about a question about something that hasn't happened, but what are your intuitions, your feelings, and kind of since you have your finger on the pulse, where do you see this going? Right. So I, I think that a lot of um, young people are very much trying to navigate their place. You know, one of the most difficult things is being sort of a borderlands person, right? So not feeling fully Americanized, not feeling fully like from Latin America. And so trying to navigate religious space and belief systems. And, you know, um, it's, it's hard to say exactly where it will go, but I do see a continued growth I'm, so it's um it's almost like a pendulum. I, I I see a continued growth of the disaffiliated, right? So those who identify as spiritual, not religious, people will continue to seek out practices like yoga, meditation, curanderismo, you know, brujería, these alternative practices um, as a form of spiritual connection. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens in terms of churches and denominations, you know, there's so much talk about churches closing and denominations shutting down. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see what the next you know, decade holds. One of the things that I wanted to ask you on was you mentioned these two blogs, Pero Like and Me Too, and kind of their hesitation to talk about religion or to deal or speak on topics of religion. Why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, I think there's a a lot of, well, what is it? <laughs> what do people say that, you know, the two things you should never talk about at a dinner party are religion and politics, Absolutely. right? And so I think some of it is that, is there's a nervousness to talk about religion. You know, unfortunately, religion has been used for ill. You know, we know of the colonial, uh, you know, the, the way that religion has been used in terms of coloniality. So I think there is some ambivalence towards, you know, how do we talk a how do we talk about religion in a productive way? How do we talk about religion without imposing it on other people? You know, so uh, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. I think it would be really great if they included an open, honest conversation about religion. I just wanted to thank uh, Dr. Lauren Guerra. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. We look forward to having you in the future. Thank you for listening to Open Philosophy.